This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the now bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou one of the Academy's curators and the producer of this series. In this episode, our producer Esme Bright meets Max Porter, one of the UK's most exciting young writers and the author of the strikingly lush and poetic novels Lanny and Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Max is a creative polymath who's collaborated with actor Killian Murphy and musicians including the Desna Twins and Bonnie Prince Billy, as well as the incredible theatre company Complicity. Now he's back with a new novella. It's called The Death of Francis Bacon, and it goes further inside the artist's head than anyone has gone before. Here are Max and Esme. Hello, and thank you, Max Porter, for joining us. We're going to talk to you about your extraordinary third book, The Death of Francis Bacon, which was published in January last year. And I have to admit, I've been thinking about how to succinctly and accurately describe the book to start this podcast episode. And I have to admit, I'm at a bit of a loss because it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. But compared to your first two works, you know, you you proved yourself to be this wizard with words and language became slippery. You hurtled through high and low culture and it was breathtaking. But there's a clear start to finish and there's a process of moving from the beginning to the end. But this book is, for me, it felt much more ambitious and it was still just as rich as the others. But I think for some people, they'd find it quite frustrating because it isn't a collection of poems. It's not a novel. It's, yes. a, it's a gallery of paintings is what you call it. And throughout this, I'm going to refer to it as your paintings, if that's all right, because that's I don't fine. want to call them poems. And as a reader, for anyone who hasn't read it, you're taking on this lucid, morphine fueled merry-go-round ride around Francis Bacon's dying mind. That's the best way That's that I think nice. I can, <laughs> I can I like explain that. it. Yes. And I really want to dig into the form. I want to dig into the language. But I think the best way to begin is just firstly really to ask why and why Bacon to start with. I, just hearing you describe it then, it, it occurred to me that you're the first person I've spoken to about this since I've seen mm. the Bacon show at the RA. And therefore, since I've actually looked at paintings by Bacon... <laughs> since writing this book mm. and I think what it clarified to me it's always fun watching people look at Bacon's because there's a certain degree of revulsion and people talking about oh I need to sit down or I feel sick or isn't that one horrifying or isn't that one gorgeous and, and it, people watching and Bacon watching combined is a really tantalizing sport but I was thinking 
it clarified for me how much I'd also wanted to get the viewer's mind, the viewer's art historical training, the institutional setup of meeting a bacon, the glass, the frame, the wall text, the cafe, the sounds of the, you know, mm. the journey to the image uh, from, from a sort of psychosexual or political or economic set of constraints. And, and I hadn't really, I don't think I'd really realised how much that, that the, as you calling them, the paintings stink of other life in a way that I'm pleased, having gone back to the paintings, it, it is true, it's true to, to life. And so I guess that's why I wanted to pollute the encounter. I wanted to try and get beyond what I felt was the sort of tyranny of, of art theory or even art history or visual analysis, the terrible boredom of, of cliché, particularly around someone as famous as Bacon. So I suppose his fame and his sort of baggage-rich hagiographical load um, was something to get try and break through. If I'd done, and I need the reader's help with that because you're the one with the baggage. Um, it's not my yes. baggage, it's, it's ours. And so if I'd done an unheard of artist or an imaginary artist, I wouldn't have had so much to play with in terms mm. of deconstructing that baggage, which is consistent with my earlier books. I think I did it with Hughes in the first book and I did it with English Myth in the second book. So that's why it's a kind of continuation of my desire to ruffle and, and poke at, 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 um, at these canonical figures, but also to try and sound a fresh note. Mm. Um, and this one, more than my other books, I think, struck me as a pure technical challenge. And in lockdown, in the kind of Zoom box or in the domestic box, I was I was looking for something really challenging and sticky and difficult. And that necessarily, for me, involves asking myself quite difficult questions about what's possible in the novel as a form. Mm. Um, so they're a combination of, of sort of personal challenge and public um, throwing down of a kind of gun, I suppose, was my... Idea. When you were writing and you were thinking about the form as well, did you see it as a form of of play, of pure experiment, and you already being an established writer, being able to, as you say, keep ruffling feathers and try something different? Or when you were writing it, was it a difficult technical exercise? Because I also read that you were a Bacon obsessive in your youth, and was there, you know, you actually do want to get him right, right. and his paintings do him justice. Mm, mm. All at once, I'd say. Yes and all at once. And the other thing is, you know, I, I didn't expect... I was pleasantly surprised that Faber wanted to publish this book, which dramatically changes. You know, we know enough about the, the, the economic context of, of, of the art in the culture industry to know that a thing that I write that goes into an avant-garde literary magazine is very different from a thing that comes out as my third book and, and has to be promoted and marketed and put through the sales machinery of modern trade publishing. And so... If I'd have thought about that when I was writing it, I probably would have written quite a different book. <laughs> uh, because fear would have got in the way, or the sort of the, the, the shock and horror of my fans. You know, you, know, you can find mm -hmm. a, a number of people on the internet who think this is just dreadful, horrifying, you know, <laughs> catastrophe in the, in the work of Max Porter, <laughs> who usually writes nice things about childhood and myth. So I, I think a lot of that has to be outside the room when you're writing, but inevitably, as someone that wants to have a kind of both sides of the brain, a kind of taut line between what I know and what I'm denying, what I'm trying to achieve and what I'm trying to keep out. I, 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 want, I want it all happening in my brain. So it inevitably was, was in there, the idea that this would meet a reader and who is mm. that reader. I wanted, perhaps where I'm at my crossest in the writing of this, if I, if I cast my mind back, is the idea that, that readers are stupid and need help and need spoon feeding, especially when it comes to the kind of biographical fetishism of, around someone like Bacon. So the idea that I needed to, to have 
a sort of familiar biographical framework or, or lots of Soho myths or lots of famous characters coming in and out or a rivalry with Freud or any of the things that pepper the biographies because that's all been done. And I, and I think mm. also in the, we, we, we are in the great stupidification of the culture industry that we're living through and cultural conservatism being as vicious and condescending as it is. The idea that readers are terribly stupid people that need lots of help, uh, you know, need footnotes and need a sense is really mm. bad for art. And it's particularly bad in our field where ambiguity is champion and king, you know, where, where readers have to do some work, some imaginative or intellectual work. So by stripping all that out and moving between registers and having a kind of opacity and a thickness and a difficulty with imagery being forefront, scrambling it all, I think what I am saying is if there is any, you know, so many of the reviews said, oh, we needed the pictures to know which pictures he's talking about. Or we needed some help as to when was Francis Bacon born and what was he dying from and what illness was he dying, you know. I think, especially in the age of the internet, if you can't just do that, 30 seconds work for yourself in order to enrich your experience going to a text. You know, so say I'm reading a book about, I don't know, you know, Israel-Palestine, and I'm not 100% sure what year the Balfour Agreement is, and that's really affecting my understanding of the book. I can quickly find that out using mm. my brain. And I think especially in the, in the area of literary fiction, it's, it's really problematic um, not not to expect the reader to to be doing that for themselves, and not and for that not to be the point, the generative, mm. the, the fundamental generative idea behind a certain type of literature. So I mm. guess that was that was where I was a bit like, no, I will I will actually make it really thick and difficult and sticky, and I'll have cameo characters dropping in that that are somewhere in between real and imagined, and because I'm writing about that painter who did that. I think if I was writing about I mean, if I was writing a book about Malevich, I'd have to do something to do with abstraction and white space and, and geometrical forms. I'm writing about Bacon, so I had to do these things. Yeah. So that was what I did, I think, was really... I really burrowed down into the question of what it means to write about Bacon, which sounds really simplistic, but that, that was good, deep, interesting, unfinished work. Mm. Do you think that we need more flamboyance, then, in contemporary literature? More, you know, something that is less flat Always and accessible? <laughs> <laughs> not flat points necessarily, but I, I, I do think we condescend. I think that the marketization of literature as a product is king. So um, mm. marketing or, or you know acquisitions teams often have power over editorial boards. Can it be sold? Is it women's fiction? Is it prize-winning fiction? Is it fiction for fans of Sally Rooney? You know, th- these are algorithmic tendencies in the thinking and, and very dangerous. But yet, you know, today I've just seen the news that the Man Booker Long List is out and it's dominated by independent presses, fiction in translation from around the world, queer literature, you know, incredibly diverse, interesting avant-garde range. Um, so things are alive and well in some areas. But I did, I did think particularly nothing would be more boring than me trotting out the old Bacon stories and writing a sort of biopic. Um, it's been done beautifully by other people. And you've also, and I'm getting better at this, you have to work out what you're good at. I don't write clean prose I don't um, write particularly good beginning middles and ends I'm into the fragmentary I'm into hybrid forms what this book has clarified for me is the extent to which I'm into collage and juxtapositional energies between different components and not so much what the components are but what energy you can create in the movement between those components for the reader so um yeah it was a sort of um it set up to me quite a high stakes game partly because of the longevity of my obsession with bacon which you mentioned and partly just because i knew it would be fractious and difficult and disturbing and disorienting in the page and i wondered how far i could take that at what point you lose your reader completely and then it's like well this is just nonsense um you know there's interesting there's a picture in the in the show the ra of a sort of it's quite early it's in the 50s and it's a sort of ripped gray 
torso dripping blood onto a sort of ripped grey canine shape. It's a very unpleasant picture. And I thought it was exactly my sort of editorial instinct kicked in and I sort of looked at it and was like, mm, that's a bad picture. You've gone too far there. You've sort of dipped your foot into your own. You've believed your own hype, really, about the ability to put the horrifying in the kitchen next to each other and the animalistic and the human. And it's actually just a bad picture. And one can feel that. One is entitled to feel that about any picture you ever look at. You're, in, you're invited to engage with it, aren't you? But it reminded me very much of my writing process. There were moments when I went too far in a kind of tongue-in-cheek, um, high-camp, Baconian, talking about oneself with David Sylvester after a few drinks. And it felt almost vulgar to do so. And I stripped it back. And there were other times when I went too abstract too painterly and it felt purely indulgent for me to try and see what I could do with, by smearing language and I realised it needed to be framed again in the context of the work I'm ready for sale at the Marlborough Gallery and you know I had to go back the other way so it was good it was exciting I mean I, I make it sound quite conscious but of course you do all this just quietly in your head while you're gazing at a blank screen well I want to ask about that process but before I do would you mind reading from the opening of the book just so that everyone can understand the how the, the kind of you keep saying the word fracture as well and I think that you need to read it aloud so we can really see that in your work okay uh, preparatory sketch non-existent pencil on paper six by four inches did I draw this Frame or bed, whole, could be window, flesh could be flat, nobody looking, one body prostrate, another attending. Note to self, but never did anything with it. Promise me, you will hide this. The body on the bed, pinned down by sickness. The body of the carer, choices. The body of the painting, reckoning. Madrid, unfinished, man dying. One, oil on canvas, 60 by 46 and a half inches. Take a seat, why don't you? Hopeless angle, chin stuck on like a dumpling, cheek like a chop. But I like the cut white sail of the cap and the forearm border with the starched guillotine sleeve. This is all worth a look. Take a seat, why don't you? I heard you before, piggy. Run along, fret poor sibling to the Catalan whip on the bowl of peas with the garlic oil. Darling mama, sister, odios, Mercedes, my hair must be utterly laughable. No oil. She pats my little linen hill belly. Hungry, starve and starch all your thoughts of food and fizz. The martyr Edward or the painter Francis. She turns and that suddenly is a handsome prospect. Twisted neck, thick line of brown shadow. That's what I'd seen this morning. Nag at me ridgebone, rather unholy. Little bull at the door beneath a broken nose. I'd love to see her snarl. There's an odd lidded familiarity in the sense of too many teeth. Teeth going all the way back down the throat. That's why she has to sit like that, as if sitting for me, lest those rows of teeth burp out. I'd love to see you snarl. See. Mina Tormachia. See, see, my hair must be utterly laughable. I can feel it fluffing, puffy. All the air I no longer have is up in my hair. No oil. Fuzz. Fuss. Fizz, you say. Last stop now. Listen. So vain. I ask her for Francis and I say, please. So she takes from her face a handsome hardback and breaks it open like it was made of crackling lacquered and we are in the details and she licks her finger. She licks the cut ridge of the pink tip and sucks, licks, pits, puts her finger in the middle fingering rings an awkward Van Dyke tapering chub bell with the ring pinning the trimmed figure to the belted indentation. Bothers me, paying attention, too pale. Sister, are you in pain? Francis, just working. 
unbother that dangling finger with a rag. What you know is that a 17th century finger will say to a 20th century eye, look at this, this little wooden box. If I put myself against the lid and push, see how tightly it makes its patient progress into that groove. Heavens, yes, it's perfectly tantalising and you hardly need me to tell you with a found image what it's like. Slices her finger and holds open the cup to show me, but I'm asleep and refusing to dance her little clichéd blood dance. So she reads... Bacon is a very remarkable but not finally important painter. Boring! I know this, I know what you're doing. She's up on the ceiling in some kind of trapeze swing seat or harness, matte bat wings, couldn't reach her if I tried. These paintings are haunting because Bacon is a brilliant stage manager rather than an original artist and because their emotion is concentratedly and desperately private. Oh, nap off you scag! Rien de tel que And the little policeman runs up to the camera and is about to scream, but the images pause, and down she comes from the ceiling above the bed and holds my eyelid open and says, Not finally important. And as the little policeman runs again to the camera and seems about to scream, it's paused again, and she drops back down again, like a great broken apparatus of tarpaulin and picnic stools, and she lifts my eyelid, and it clicks as it leaves the eyeball and says, Desperately private. And there he is again, the pre-scream, the about-to-scream policeman with his little hat, and I know exactly what this is. I know it step by step. It is arriving at a party, again, and feeling horribly new, unknown, lonely and awkward, affecting disinterest and realising the only way is to spin on in. Whip up some energy. And for that, we need drinks. And for that, we need more drinks. And she lifts my eyelid again and says, I will see you later, dear boy. See. Intenta descansa. Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for reading that. I have to say, it's such a different experience having you read it rather than my own voice reading it aloud in my head. Um, <laughs> You've got to I ramp up the bit. old am dram in your own head. I know, I know. You even, you know, you do the police in different voices there, didn't you? But I love the Berger bit and I, his criticism is sort of, you know, your criticism as well. And I love the bit with the policeman in the party because... Something that I really appreciate about the book is from what I understand of Bacon is that people love him because he's he's a paradox and he's double-sided and they know that he's sort of obsessed with disgust and revulsion and he he was the Bacon that, you know, he was asthmatic and he struggled to breathe and he hated his father. But he was loving and tender and it's the love and revulsion which is the interesting part of Bacon. And I think... In that section, you capture, you know, him going to a party and feeling embarrassed. And I wondered when I read that, how you yourself reconcile Bacon's duality in your mind. And are you lured in by his, you know, paradoxical side? Is that part of what Mm. interests you? Very much. I think that one changes over the years, looking at an artist's work again and again, or listening to a musician's work again and again, or re-reading, which I think is an important thing to do, to see who you were when you read it. So I'm confronting various different dated tolerances or engagements with Bacon. I was, as a teenager, more interested in the shock and the pain and the violence. And I suppose I am now more interested in the tenderness, yes. Mm. The Bacon who invites his cleaner to his private view and yeah, that sort of side yeah. of him. And, and was lonely, terribly lonely, yeah. uh, uneasy, lifelong and fascinating, I think, from a sort of psychoanalytical point of view, imposter syndrome and, and manic, egotistical, uh, sort of 
as you said, flamboyance. I, I think the, the, the question is, where, where is it in the paintings? And I've always been really fascinated about the ability to have these smooth, calm, perfectly controlled expanses of unblemished paint and these very violently worked um, areas of, of almost clawed and ripped and polished and scrubbed and torn and toothpaste brushed and fleckled and spat. And I've always, in, in the performance of Bacon's paintings, I've always um, felt this striving for the lucky break. And looking at them recently, as well as writing about him, I think I, I've, I've doubled down on that, that what he's doing is always looking for a solution to a problem, is can you push it and push it, and then do you get your lucky break, which is, ah, a, a thing that is suddenly working. And for him, that's usually a formulaic thing. It's figure in space is suddenly popping or snarling or looks half human to just the right degree or, or captures the sitter's presence whilst also not looking like them or whatever it is. It's completely bespoke to the picture involved. But it's luck. It's work and work and then, and then learning in your art to recognise when you're onto something. And to me, that, that, that in itself is a profoundly tender aspect of an artist's work. It, it, it's it's, it's self-knowledge and it's artistry mm. and, it's also, and it's also trust as well as the letting go and letting the fates or the muse or, or, or your technical prowess take over at a certain point. And so I found myself looking at these paintings recently really feeling that work that desperate, painful, frustrated, scrabbling thing, and then that, oh, there it is. There, there is a successful image. And for him, successful is, is not illustrative or, or literal. It's sometimes it's, it's disturbance or, or, or mm. violence or a pure sensory thing. But I, I felt that was a very literary undertaking. And I felt that the relationship between reader, performer, the sort of artifice of these, these performance states and the solitude of Bacon in his studio. I felt in writing this book, I'd understood that better than I ever have. Um, but that's an yeah. understanding I wouldn't necessarily leave on him. I would take it into, you know, the raising of children or the listening to me or, 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 or the appreciation of, of, of a weather system, whatever it is. I think that I might, that would be my revelation uh, mm. to coin, to coin the phrase from the biography that, 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 for, that, that it, it's about, a sort of reconciliation between what you're naturally capable of, what you're trying to be better at, and these moments of luck where you break through. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You used to be an editor for Granta. And mm. do you find that when you write yourself that you edit your own work, do you have quite an editor's mind or yeah. do you 
Oh, really? Interesting. I have a very, I have a very, very editorial mindset when I write. Mm. I don't write lots and then cut away. I write very little and don't tend to change much. Mm, and then I love being edited. I am lucky to have good editors, yeah. and I and I love the kind of question machine of a well-edited manuscript. But partly because I have a good conversational and collaborative relationship with my editors, that what they're doing is not saying this is wrong or right or good enough or not quite good enough yet. They're saying, "Do you mean this? Is this too much? This is this too much? That?" So only asking me to ask the questions that, as creator of the work, one is unable to ask oneself while one is making it. My analogy always was blo- was blowing the book up, as we allowing said, the writer um, to walk around it. As, as we said, um, you know, this was published last year, beginning of last year. And as when you reread work, as you did just then for us, have your feelings about the text changed since you first did your first sort of publicity tour and it first came out and you released it into the world? Well, if I can be very honest, I was a little bit apologetic about this book. I felt that I'd given Faber something that they couldn't really publicise. They can't really take to readers and say, this will this will <laughs> move and delight you, because it isn't. And I, So I felt indulged in the publishing of it. And actually, I've come to feel quite differently about it, that actually we must have space in our culture for the slightly odd ones that don't fit in the box that are that are that are challenging and a little bit difficult and possibly have relate in a sort of slant wise way to the to the mainstream and as someone that sits quite oddly between experimental literature and the mainstream like unexpected you know my first book was hugely unexpected I, I, you know I've still got an email somewhere saying if we're lucky it'll sell 600 copies and so I didn't on that unexpectedness it sits a kind of unease which is probably quite healthy that every Mm. gesture I make in the direction of my readership I'm still thinking is anyone going to read this and should they so I I think actually as time moves on and I've seen it and I've had really interesting conversations with translators about this book and as I say seeing that RA show was very clarifying I felt still fascinated by by Bacon by what it means to write about paint um, so yeah, I, th- I feel interested in it, and I've 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 been working on a new book, and I also binned a book last year, and I'm writing lots of things for the stage, and and in the space between all those different projects, I am clarifying for myself what I'm interested in with voice mm. and with the directness of encounter between a reader, particularly now in these d- difficult, cluttered, busy, attention draining times. That that quality of that encounter when you sit on your own presumably in a quiet room and read a book, is, is, is it a rarefied and extraordinary and therefore I think quite radical space. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, my interest in it is recharged by the Bacon Project, yeah. At the same time as I, I, I'm not going to go on Goodreads and, and find out how dismal and depressing and upsetting people found this book. I'm glad to hear that your own relationship, not only with the book, hasn't you know turned sour if you've had to you know, push it and a whole other year paperback coming out and everything. No, but, but it was all cancelled. So it was, it's all been really, oh, it's all good. been really interesting conversations like this with people. I, I never had to flog it, which I think helped me. And, you know, yes. actually, I, I, when, when I was talking to Faber about my new book, I said, you know, just, just for, for the record, I'm, 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 I'm back and I'll flog this. I'll do all your festivals and I'll, and I'll go and sign it and watch it. You know, the apologetic concept of the Bacon book is, is specific to that. Mm. But your own relationship with Bacon as well hasn't changed because you said at the very beginning of this that you you wanted to create something that didn't you know take the life out of his artwork and wasn't founded in difficult criticism that not everyone's read. But you also have made something which is 
based in all of that as well. But has spending so much time with him sucked the life out of your obsession for him or not? No, it continues. I think it's really, it's really... I think the harder you look... I mean, I was taught to look at paintings by a real mm. pro by when I was studying art history. And I, and I think the longer you look, the more rewarding it is. Yes. And I feel that about anything, you know, be, be, it, be it making sandwiches for children or, 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 or reading Emily Dickinson. The more work you put in, the more you get out. And so really what I've, what I've realised is, is how humble I am in the face of an oeuvre like that, or, or, or indeed the history of the painted image or the written word. I have a lot to do. I, I, have much, I, I have to look much harder. I mean, I've been looking at Bacon since I was 14 years old and I've really looked and I've read more or less every book I can find on him and I'm only getting started in, in an understanding mm. of my relationship to that work and what that work means in relation to the history of the painted image or... And so I, I, I'm sort of, yeah, humbled and inspired, really. And with Bacon particularly, um, what I did, I'm, I'm adapting this book into a play. And in that movement, which feels very much to me like translation, taking something that is a sort of novel, a sort of play-like novel and turning it into quite, I hope, a novelistic play. But also I'm, I'm, using, I'm, I'm, I'm using the tools of Bacon's trade much more. I'm going to have a triptych of blank canvases. I'm going to have the incunabula, the junk from the studio, magazines, old tins of turpentine, you know, dental hygiene adverts and things used. And I'm going to play much more with who is bacon and anyone can be bacon. I want it to be a part that could be played by, you know, a 17-year-old girl, if needs be. You know, it's going to have no, um, you know, no no prescription at all. Um, and, I, and, and in that movement, away from my own work, I'm getting, I think, possibly even closer to Bacon in terms of the sort of liberation of the work from his oeuvre and back into the history of Western art and the history of performance and and the human body at the end of the 20th century. Um, you know, even now, you know, the, the, I grew up obsessed with nuclear war and even now with that obsession very close to us all again and, and, and sort of the real and present danger of war um, in, in the sort of the, the kind of whataboutery that one does in one's own head you know, what about the children being bombed in underground hospitals in Damascus last year? Why weren't you... Bo- you know, that in a way, that those are the sort of questions that Bacon is always asking you to to ask. You're OK now in the Royal Academy looking at this nice picture behind glass, but what about the cancer that is growing in you? What about the blood that is bubbling underneath your surface? What about your rage and your horniness and all these things? And so I think it's been very useful reminder that that work is never done. Um, mm. And the, paint, the painting is never finished. Um, yes, it has to go to market. You know, the book has to be printed and bound and put into covers, but I don't finish it. The reader does. And all the blank yes. space in my books is yours to, to colour in. That's so beautiful. But, you know, a painting has no end. And you're quite right in saying that satisfaction comes from looking and looking deeper and looking with different people, looking in different lights. And do you think that... Looking with different interpretive your... tools, looking with a different exactly. end game. Absolutely, yeah. Do you think your book therefore needs to be reread is it something that you hope people return to can they dip back in and just read a a painting every once in a while i'd love that (laughs) if that's available to me then yes please because it's the same i mean i had this thing of 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 using the catalogue raisonate open on screen ah yes i wanted to ask you did you have things on your office or did you go I was thinking, I was wondering if you went baconless and you just had it in your mind. I went baconless text-wise. I didn't reread any of the major... I read the, reread the mm. interviews, but I didn't reread any of the, 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 the 
big bacon books. I had it all. I mean, I have always, I, I can't turn my computer around because it's plugged in, but I have always uh, several hundred images pinned in front of me when I'm working. I had the big triptychs open from the Great Hayward Gallery exhibition catalogue, and then I had the catalogue raisonné on, online. So you can move, it's an extraordinary resource. You can move through, chronologically, through the decades. And that kind of immersion, whilst not ideal, because bacon needs to be looked at in the flesh, um, as, as a kind of flicker board, like, like a person's mind might be as they lie dying, of the images they've seen with this absolutely essential book, The Inconabula, that Thames and Hudson published of, of the, the stuff on the studio floor. So that opened there and the images on the screen. So I was immersed all the time, but I, I, I guess I wanted a kind of, because I'm trying to get to a, almost an elegiac chemical haze, as you said, morphine-rich chemical haze. I wanted a kind of democracy of all those ingredients. I wanted nothing higher than the other because it wasn't a gallery. There was no image that I was fixating on. I wanted to create a kind of mulch. Same way with Lanny, really. And, you know, people always said to me, did you, did you sit on buses and listen to people talk? And I said, well, do, we, do I not anyway? <laughs> you are, you're, you're open, you know. So I just opened myself to Bacon very intensely for about three or four weeks before I started mm. writing, which was good. And I, and I feel now I, I, I would like to do that with other people. Yes. Um, and, and you have to have a sort of sense, you have to have a, a readiness. And as you say, because you have to have, to, have to sort of have an understanding in yourself that that, like you said, you bring, you come and look at it with a different person on a different day, in a different emotional weather system, in a different pair of clothes, in a different skin. Um, and that work is, it, when done properly, is always unfinished and also takes a lot out of you. Mm. Um, and Bacon of all the painters in the world is the one that wants to take a chunk out of you yes oh gosh I did you feel exhausted when you completed the project and also I wonder in your mind is Bacon a real person in the sense that you can understand him wholly and you see that he's flawed and dynamic and swaggering and drinking and being rude and everything or is he still slightly mythic and he's the man who created this art that transfixes you or can you kind of when you're writing could you feel what he would have been like in that room well but I think I was because he's evasive in the book yeah no I think I was trying to get at a surface that had him partially absent because I'm Mm. trying to try and capture something about the paintings rather than exactly um Mm. and someone said about the failure to accurately capture Bacon's voice. And I thought, God, how funny that I've written this book, handed it in, edited it, it's been published. And the idea of trying to sound like Francis Bacon had never occurred to me all that time. I mean, when I recorded the audio book, I was keen not to sound like Francis Bacon because I thought that would just be ridiculously hammy to put on his voice. Because also he's not, he's not Bacon, he's... He's mm. a bake, he, you know, he's a version of himself. But I think in your question about whether people would reread it, I would, I mean, any writer would, of course, love loves the idea of their work prickling or, or, or nudging or, or bothering people beyond its final page. But I do love the idea that something about the energy in the prose, the, the loss of focus sometimes in the language, the, the, that, that, the violence that's been done syntactically in, in, at a granular level to the thing would infect a person's looking at Bacon and vice versa, that they might go to Bacon have a physical experience. Like a friend of mine went to see the show and had to sit down because she felt physically sick. And she rang me and said it clarified the book for her that what mm. she had felt was a literary gesture, a gimmick, if you like, a, a, a stunt on the page. She realised when looking at the paintings was in fact directly related to their effect on the eye and the brain and the body. And I thought, oh, wow. well, in which case, that's the dream. That's the dream well, that's for also, 
a sign that your experiment, if we, if I can call it that, was successful and that you've, you know, people have debated whether or not you can use words to create painting and translate painting into literature for so long, but you've done something different then in that you've created art. You haven't translated it. You have created art through words. And then if someone says that and they get that visceral reaction, that must be phenomenal as an author to hear that. It's magical. It's great. And it can't be your be-all and end-all, but it's particularly pleasing to hear, as you say, with an experiment of this sort. Similarly, you know, with the grief book, people can be left very cold by that. It doesn't speak to them. It, 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 they, it, doesn't, it doesn't relate to their experience of loss. Other people mm. will queue up for three hours to tell me that it changed their life and that, they, and, and that it's the only thing they've ever read that speaks to them truthfully of the temporal disruption of, of loss of a child. You know, so um, one, one doesn't fixate on those. It's dangerous, I think, indeed, to fixate on those things as a writer or, or, or find validation in them. Um, but they, they, they pack into you they, they, they cling to you inevitably in the same way as Bacon you know the, the, the fact of, of someone telling him his pain, his pain the, the Berger quote which is taunting him in, in his, in his mm. dying days of, of him being nothing more than a stage manager there's a reason why I wanted that on the deathbed because we are human beings making work about human things and therefore bitterness, jealousy, inadequacy rage, um, manic <laughs> neediness are a part of it they're absolutely mm. part of the physical processes of, be, of making the work. And I wanted them present near the surface rather than the fame and the glory and the, and the biographical neatness of his path from grandeur. You know, the, the, the thing is littered with desperation. And I, and I suppose I, I wanted to, as you, as you were saying about the man, I feel that. I love him for it. I see it in myself and find it both repellent and acceptable. You know, so the kind of like writing as, <laughs> as therapy... It feels like an important stage in my in my coming to terms with with what I do, and, and mm. what it means to other people. Yeah. And just as a final question, you said that you're working on theatre. I know that you've translated um, grief into a stage play, and you turned um, all this unreal time into a, a film as well. When you're playing with these different forms, when lots of your books are about visualizing absence, whether it's a lost family member or a boy or a painting when you're working in these different forms is that is that a fantastic challenge does it frighten you does writing still excite you what's what's in the future for you and how do you feel about all the upcoming projects and different mediums that you want to try well I don't want to be too uh, rapturous about it but I I feel really really excited <laughs> I'm profoundly lucky to be able to make these work you know collaboration for me is is life I can't imagine anything worse than being sitting in this room and being told to to knock out the next Max Porter product for this notional Max Porter readership with a Max Porter price tag or a Max Porter cover. That 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 way is death. I, I think it's just brilliant to 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 sponge off other people's skill sets and imagine you know, I love working with other people. It's profoundly changed me. That the, the working in a theatre and working with actors has changed what I think I want to do as a novelist. Working with musicians is always just such a clarifying reminder of how much they've got going on and how limited my tools are. I just it, What I want, and what's been happening really nicely actually through lockdown with some of the collaborations that have become possible uh, remotely, is is this clarification, I, I keep saying to you, of, of, what, of what a huge set of possibilities there are for the novel. And as the novel is the thing I've chosen to do, if I can, if I can put plays and children's books and jokes and essays and 
um, folk albums and you know ambient drone um, installations into the novel, then good. The novel will will possibly fight for its own relevance and keep on interesting, uh, you know, a broad range of people, and possibly even keep having something to say. I think if I were to sort of think right, better satisfy X already satisfied readership or do another product that imitates success that uh, I'd find that spiritually as well as creatively quite um, counterproductive and possibly toxic. Um, mm. I love other people, you know, and also my, my work doesn't spring from author on pedestal in a room being the sole, you know, the, 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 the voice of the tortured romantic writer. It springs from um, being busy, raising children, sharing the space with other people from other disciplines. You know, all my projects now are about me not being on my own on the stage, having musicians and other writers and poets and comics with me. I want to muddy the the, the, the work of the novelist, not not purify it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm feeling excited. Um, and, and also, <laughs> I, we all talk about imposter syndrome endlessly, but I like that feeling of, on a Monday, being really frightened of having no idea how I'm going to do a thing and feeling like everyone's being so noisy and the dog is jumping on me and, and I've got to go and pick up the kids from football and I've got to stand and talk to a boring man at the football and blah, 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 blah. And how am I possibly going to make anything? And then and then I get back and I have my blank page or my notebook and it only takes me... I'm like Alice. I, it just takes me a second to slip through the mirror and I'm back in this very focused, very grateful space of of feeling like there's possibilities in the form and um in the links between other art forms and in, 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 in that time is short and that i that i love to make work while i can wow well max porter that's very good news for me and for everyone else like me who enjoys reading everything you write but i love hearing how excited you are by the possibilities of literature and also you, you sound very hopeful about culture and things that people are interested in and appetite for challenge and i think that's a lovely thing to hear and be reminded of we've got to go for it you know we live in very we live in very culturally conservative times i i i'm a banger of this drum and we 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 have to innovate we have to fund the arts we have to keep on diversifying and expanding what we mean by art and who it's for we um that, that that the fight is on um so i feel really passionate about that yeah and your passion is palpable in your work so thank you so much for talking to me max porter and thank you for writing and fighting and fighting for art i think that's what you do that's very nice thank you this episode of the podcast starred max porter and was presented by esme bright it was produced by me and i co-produced the series with dana outcult the editor is john daughty if you love literature and are a regular listener You've probably heard me say this a hundred times, but please do check out some of the other writers in our archive. From William Gibson to Isabella Allende, we run the gamut from science fiction to magical realism, and everything in between. We also host some of the most remarkable figures in arts and culture every night of the week in live streams and live events, so visit us at howtoacademy.com to find out more. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.